Just as what's happening in India today is by no means the handiwork of Modi alone, the freedom movement and the constitutional patriotism that was encoded in the Indian Republic was by no means the handiwork of Gandhi alone. There were many great leaders, B.R. Ambedkar, the chief draftsman, the Indian constitutional visionary, lawyer, scholar from an untouchable background is one such figure. Rabindranath Tagore, the great poet who was a precocious early critic of jingoistic nationalism, female leaders, Muslim leaders, so it was a whole constellation of visionary and reformers of whom Gandhi happened to be the most influential and important, but by no means the sole voice. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. The different schedules of publishers and timing of a presidential election in France. My new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, is actually out in French translation right now before it will be published in English at the end of April, on April 19th. If you have a moment to pre-order it now, I would be extremely grateful. So I have been in Paris for the last week or so, promoting the book, having lots of conversations about the state of diverse democracies, lots of debates with people from different parts of the political spectrum here. And I just have three little observations, some positive, some negative, about the state of a debate in France and how it reflects on the United States. The first positive one is that it strikes me to what extent French intellectual and political elites really still believe in something and how different that now seems in the United States. The French political and intellectual class has a very strong commitment to the founding values of the French Republic, to laicity, to universalism, to the indivisibility of the French nation. And it makes me recognize just to what extent the core set of beliefs in the nature of the American Republic, in the animating political philosophy of a country, had eroded long before the different intellectual fevers of the last 10 years could come in and take control of the country. It is something that I have to say I admire in the current state in France. The second observation, which is more negative, is that those values are sometimes interpreted in an overly rigid manner. That a striking amount of the debate in France does seem to turn on an idea of integration, on an idea of laicity, of the meaning of the separation of the state and public space from religion, and an idea of universalism, which can actually make it harder to find common sense solutions, sometimes accommodations, that would in fact encourage people to integrate themselves. But the third observation, which is positive once again, is that the state of the intellectual debate is much healthier in France, not necessarily in terms of content, not necessarily in terms of where the consensus lies, but in terms of the seriousness of the debate and the openness to argument. I have been in conversation over the last days with people from very different parts of the French political spectrum, from the secularist left, to what is considered the identitarian or woke left, to a robust right. I have disagreements with each of these positions, 
that the conversations were intellectually serious, mutually respectful, and there was a sense of openness to argument. And it drove home to me just how much the United States has changed in that regard. To what extent, when I first came to the United States, I loved the free-flowing nature of political debate, of the clash of different ideologies, which allowed people to put together a sometimes idiosyncratic set of beliefs. And to what extent now, the overwhelming majority of voices you hear in the public space are a form of comms official, comms operative for their respective political space. The extent to which you can predict entirely what somebody, what even a newspaper will say, for example, about a movie, depending on their political positioning and how the message of that movie seems to confirm or to undermine a particular political narrative. This is not to make a special virtue out of France, which has its own problems, but it is, I think, to point to a special, frankly, sickness in the nature of the intellectual debate, in the extent to which it has become an intellectual war by other means over the last years. Now, thankfully, these are not permanent features of a country or of an intellectual culture. It is not what the United States felt like when I first arrived in the country a dozen years ago. I hope that it won't be what the United States will feel like in 10 or 12 years, but it has reminded me of just how bad the state of intellectual life in the United States is at the moment and how much we all should try to swim against that current. My guest today is probably the most distinguished historian of India, Ramachandra Guha. Ram is the author of a number of important books about the history of a country, including India after Gandhi and Gandhi before India. But he has also written on a wide range of other topics, including beautifully on cricket in a corner of a foreign field. He is also a member of Persuasion's Board of Advisors. We talked about the crisis that Indian democracy faces at the moment because of Narendra Modi, but we also really put that into perspective of India's long-run history leading up to 1947. Whether you want to understand what's going on in India better today, or whether you want to get a kind of primer on a kind of introduction to Indian history over the last hundred or so years, I hope this conversation is for you. Ramachandra Guha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are a distinguished, perhaps the most distinguished historian of India, and I'm keen to understand more about the history of a country from you. But before we get into that, I'd love to get a sense of what the state of Indian politics is today. Narendra Modi at this point has been in office for one and a half terms. He appears to have expanded his power quite powerlessly. To what extent is the great democratic success story of the post-war era, perhaps the most surprising democratic success story of the post-war era, in danger today? So it's in crisis. I wouldn't use the word danger because that is perhaps slightly hyperbolic. India will celebrate its 75th anniversary of independence this year. In those seven and a half decades, it's gone through several crises. The crisis of partition wars with China and Pakistan in the 1960s, the emergency of the 1970s, when we lost our democratic rights for two years. And this is probably the fourth serious crisis the Republic has faced. 
And it's quite similar to what happened in the 1970s with Indira Gandhi in that you have a cult of personality. You have a fusion of the leader, the party and the government. In this case, with an additional twist, which is religious majoritarianism, which was not there in the 1970s with Indira Gandhi. The attempt to convert India into some kind of de facto Hindu majoritarian state, mirroring Pakistan, which is an Islamic majoritarian state. So that's one difference between now and the 1970s, the last time we had a kind of a creeping authoritarianism. Could you step back for a moment for the international audience and explain what happened in the 1970s with the emergency in Indira Gandhi? So in the 1970s, Indira Gandhi, like Narendra Modi, was prime minister with a majority in parliament. And she faced a popular movement on the streets against misrule and corruption. There was a Supreme Court judgment which mandated that she vacate her prime ministership temporarily because of some election malpractices. She refused to do that. She abrogated democratic rights. She changed the constitution. She postponed the elections by a year and a half. And for about 18 months, all the opposition leaders were in jail. There was no freedom of the press. There were no civil liberties. But quite miraculously and surprisingly, Indira Gandhi on her own revoked the emergency called elections, which she lost. Now, today we don't have an emergency. Some people speak of an undeclared emergency because there is a visible authoritarianism. There is a capitulation of independent institutions like the press and even the judiciary to the power of Narendra Modi and his party. However, I'll just add one caveat. Many parts of India, some important states such as in the South and in Bengal are not under the control of the BJP. So there are still spaces of opposition activity there. But the media has completely collapsed and large sections of the judiciary as well. And that's really the problem. So tell us a little bit more about the nature of this undeclared emergency. What does it look like to say that the media are under control or that the judiciary is no longer as independent as it was? What concrete changes have taken place in India over the last seven or eight years? So, you know, Yasha, the major television houses and the major newspapers in India, unlike in America, are owned by business houses that have other interests. So they may run chemical factories, uh, steel mills, pharmaceutical companies, and also have a newspaper. So the government will start a tax rate on your chemical industry to bring you to your knees. Also, your newspapers are dependent on public advertisements, which don't come. So I think the major newspapers and television channels, with one or two few exceptions, most of the free media is in the digital space, essentially carry the party line. They praise the prime minister morning to night. They often promote nasty, vicious propaganda against religious minorities and so on. The judiciary acts somewhat differently. It takes up cases very slowly. So the special status of Kashmir, which was granted by the Indian constitution, was abrogated more than two years ago. And a challenge to that has still not been heard by the Supreme Court. So it's rather they don't really pass judgments in favor of the government. So they do that too. They don't take up difficult cases. And instead of acting as a counter-majoritarian court, they essentially largely do the government's bidding. And so you've explained the mechanism for how the media has come under the control. If the newspaper is owned by a large conglomerate that has all kinds of commercial interests, which depend on government action, then obviously it's easy for the government to put them under pressure. What about the judiciary? How is it that the Supreme Court has come to be controlled by the government in the way you are? I won't say it's been controlled to the government, but it's been timid. Also, the government has in its past, Yasha, the awarding of post-retirement sinecures to judges. So unlike in the United States, where Supreme Court judges are there for life, 
Here, Supreme Court judges retire at 65. But you could be appointed governor of a province. You could become chair of a commission with cabinet rank, retaining your perquisites and your bungalows in Delhi. You could become a member of the upper house, which has happened recently to a chief justice. So there are various ways, inducements which are held out, which make some, I wouldn't say all chief justices, but in the recent past, the last three chief justices preceding this, the present incumbent have been extremely timid and I would say by and large pro-government. Of course, I don't want to speculate why that is, but independence, they aren't independent, they aren't forthright and above all, they delay important cases. So it'll be years and years before cases are heard. There's also a new legislation, professionally an anti-terrorist legislation, where bail is never granted and people can be picked up and incarcerated for years on end on extremely flimsy evidence. And bail is the exception in such cases under this anti-terror act. Whereas the court should have really heard the act, probably declared it unconstitutional so that such mass incarcerations of activists and dissenters are not allowed. I'm always struck by the cultural and sometimes political significance of these government-owned bungalows right in the center of New Delhi and the inducement they provide to people to want to live in those beautiful places. What about the nature of religious majoritarianism, which we were saying was one of the real differences to the 1970s? What's the nature of that religious majoritarianism and to what extent do you think Modi is succeeding in his ambition of turning India into a Hindu nation? Well, I don't know whether he's succeeding, but he and his party are certainly trying. So one access is legislative. So you have the abrogation of the special status of Kashmir because it was the only Muslim majority province in India. So a spiteful act against the only Muslim majority province, you downgrade it rather than a full state. It becomes like Puerto Rico, a kind of administered territory administered by the center. A second way would be other laws, for example, a Citizenship Amendment Act, which provides Indian citizenship to any refugee so long as he's not a Muslim. So Rohingyas who are persecuted can't become Indians. But Hindus who may be persecuted in Pakistan can become Indians. So clearly recognizing Muslims as somehow not Indian enough, which is not just unconstitutional, but goes totally antithetical to the whole heritage of our freedom struggle. Finally, popular discourse. So there is at the moment a state election being conducted in Uttar Pradesh, which is our largest state. And the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, who's from the BJP, and Amit Shah, who's Narendra Modi's home minister and second in command, have used explicitly majoritarian language, stigmatizing Muslims in their speech, in their advertisements, in their propaganda. And Modi has done it less so. So Modi allows everyone else to be visibly majoritarian and communal and visceral in the hatred of Muslims. He occasionally slips into that, but he'll pretend to be above the, above the fray, whereas he actually isn't. And street violence, Yasha. So there's been a series of lynchings of Muslims over the last seven years. In the last few months, I don't know whether you have noticed this or the Western press has noticed this, there have also been attacks against Christians. So in my home state, Karnataka in South India, where I live, there is an anti-conversion law explicitly aimed at Christians. In the lead up to Christmas, several churches were attacked. And there is no word from the prime minister or his ministers about this. There is no caution. There is no chastisement. In fact, there is tacit encouragement. What does an anti-conversion law consist of? So it essentially says if there's an interfaith marriage. So if a Christian is marrying a Hindu, and even if the Hindu voluntarily wants to convert, 
they can be arrested without really any charge sheet and be charged by illegal conversion. But apart from this law, there's also vigilantism. So street hooligans attacking churches, not allowing Muslims to pray and so on. Online abuse. So last week, some of the most prominent female Muslim journalists, there was an auction for them on social media. A totally ugly, misogynistic, patriarchal, alleged auction of these brave women who happen to be Muslim. And there is no word at all from the ruling party politicians about such debased behavior. Well, one of my most favorite and least favorite terms in Indian political discourse, most favorite because it is bitterly funny, but least favorite because it is actually horrendous, is the idea of love jihad. So the idea of people wanting to, I guess, spread Muslim religion through love marriages in which they make their wives convert. I think that speaks to their fear about conversion, right? I think to quite get the significance of this religious majoritarianism, it's important to go back and understand the sort of nature of India's founding, which you've written movingly about. So why don't we go back, not just 70 or 80 years, but a little bit further and explain to the audience what India looked like before independence, what India looked like before Gandhi, and then to understand sort of the nature of the founding and the way in which Modi is now trying to undermine that. Yasha, just a caution. I think it's not just Modi. It's Modi, his party, the BJP, his allies like Amit Shah, and of course the Rashtriya Swayam Sevang Sang, which is a kind of a so-called cultural organization, which really, you know, uh, directs the ideology of the BJP. Of course, there's a personality cult around Modi and he personalized it, but it'd be a mistake to attribute all these shifts and changes simply to him. He's the vehicle, the manifestation, the leader of a massive project to reshape India. Now, to go back to it's a long story and I don't know where to start, but one of the features of this podcast is that we take our time. So tell the story in as much detail as you like. So one way to start would be the 19th century and British colonization. And among the majority Hindus, the British colonization, among the intellectuals of the Hindu community, the British colonization provoked two kinds of responses. One was self-reflective. Why have we been colonized? Because we haven't adopted modern technology, we've been ossified, conservative, set in our ways. We have treated our women badly. We have a caste hierarchy in which we have a section of our community who are treated as untouchables. So you had Hindus who are social reformers trying to make Hindu society in particular and Indian society in general uh, come to terms with the modern world and the economic and political and moral challenges of the modern world. A second reaction would be no. We have been colonized because we weren't organized enough. We weren't cohesive enough. And we must we become united and we must also reclaim all those who have become Christians and Muslims preparatory to creating a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu state. And both the Hindu reformist reaction and the Hindu revivalist reaction start in the 19th century. And of course, at the same time, among the Muslims who before partition took place for more than 30% of India, so very large. There were similar tensions between reform and revivalism and a very important, critical and in retrospect, very damaging move by the British authorities was to use separate electorates for Muslims so that Muslims only vote for Muslims. And that created a sense of separatism among the Muslim intelligentsia, which eventually led to Pakistan. And this, of course, created, uh, you know, 
On the one hand, you had Gandhi who said, even if partition takes place, the Muslims and Christians who stay behind would have equal rights because we don't believe in a denominational state, in a theocratic state. But you also had Hindus who felt angry that Pakistan had been created on religious grounds and wanted to mimic it, to rival it, to create a kind of Hindu Pakistan in India. And that debate continues. And at the moment, the votaries of a Hindu Pakistan seem to be winning. They're not comfortably ahead, but they seem to be winning. So going back, when you look at the debate between the reformists and the revivalists, what role do each of them play in the independence movement that starts to really gain strength in the first half of the 20th century? Are they uncomfortable allies? Is there a clear leadership by one side of this? What's the nature of the independence movement leading up to 1947? From the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they are in a kind of tension. Both wings are present in the Indian freedom movement. After Gandhi comes, Gandhi believes that for Indians to be fit for freedom, they must abolish untouchability and they must promote Hindu-Muslim harmony and they must cultivate an ethic of manual labor and economic self-reliance. But he uses the religious idiom. So he is a Hindu reformer. At the same time, in the Congress Party, you have people associated with Gandhi who are conservatives, who are not so forthright in their condemnation of untouchability, for example. And you also have some people who are to the left of Gandhi, such as Jawaharlal Nehru, who is a secularist who believes religion is something that is only a private matter for individuals. Right. But Gandhi's greatness, moral greatness, and I think this was through all through his life, but particularly in his last months, was that although he was a practicing Hindu, he did not believe there was only one path to God. He had close Christian and Muslim and Parsi and Jewish friends. And above all, he was clear that India would be a land in which everyone would have equal citizenship, regardless of religious affiliation. And that's the legacy. And he and Nehru were on the same page in that regard, Nehru being the first prime minister of India. And that's the kind of pluralist, inclusive religious legacy uh, that the present regime wants to overturn. I mean, they want to overturn many other things, but that's one of the important things they want to overturn. And so in one interesting essay, you argue that this is a kind of Indian form of constitutional patriotism, actually. Tell us about how this is sort of an Indian version, in a way, of French Republican values or the American tradition. Yeah, I would say it's not an Indian version. It's sui generis. It's different from, and it has its own independent origins. And in some ways, I believe it's morally more robust than French or American patriotism. Because above all for Gandhi, he did not privilege religion and he did not privilege language. The French are obsessed about French. You know, the whole history of making French a standard language in the 19th century. And of course, extinguishing all the different dialects, creating a standard dictionary, vocabulary, grammar. The Americans are obsessed about English as a link language. In India, the greatness of Gandhi was he recognized India as a land of many languages. Each of these languages has a great ancient classical literature and a literary tradition going back hundreds and thousands of years. So he re retained linguistic pluralism as well as religious pluralism. Then, of course, equality for women, you know, at least in theory. In practice, it took a very long time to achieve. But I would like to remind your listeners, Yasha, or to tell them that in 1925, the Indian National Congress, the main political party in India, had a female president. 
Now, it was inconceivable for the Democrats or the Republicans even to have a county president or a state president who was female. So, in 1928, 20 years before independence, the Congress committed itself to universal adult franchise from the word go, not in stages. Right. So, I think the idea that India was a hierarchical society, particularly the axis of caste and gender inequality, and as he marked the building of a modern republic, was at this one, particularly caste was a peculiarly Indian problem. It's comparable to race, but not exactly like race. And at our founding, we tackled caste head on, whereas, of course, the American founders basically ignored the problem of race in their founding. So it was a particular form of what I call constitutional patriotism. You can call it something else, which talked about values. We did not impose ethnic or linguistic or religious homogeneity. And above all, was not premised on an enemy. Indian nationalism was not defined by hatred of Pakistan. Today it is. Today it's becoming that. And Modi and Shah and the BJP would like that. But it was defined by an adherence to a certain set of values, which the founders of the republic felt would enable India to hold its own in an ever-changing, complex, interdependent world. And so Gandhi was able to impose that vision on India to convince many members of this country early on of this vision. But it started to be undermined, I suppose, in two different ways. One is the choice by key Muslim leaders that they did not want to be part of that multi-confessional India, but they wanted a state of their own. And then later, I suppose, the resistance within parts of Hindu society, who said, no, actually, we want to follow suit. But tell us first about the nature of partition and the bloodshed and the split of Pakistan. Again, a question about the dangers of excessively personalizing anything. So just as what's happening in India today is by no means the handiwork of Modi alone, the freedom movement and the constitutional patriotism that was encoded in the Indian Republic was by no means the handiwork of Gandhi alone. You know, there were many great leaders, B.R. Ambedkar, the chief draftsman of the Indian constitutional visionary lawyer, scholar from an untouchable background, was not part of the Congress party, but was brought into the cabinet, is one such figure. Rabindranath Tagore, the great poet, who was a precocious early critic of jingoistic nationalism, his lectures on nationalism delivered during the First World War in the United States and Japan, I think should be mandatory reading for school scholars children everywhere, female leaders, you know, Muslim leaders. So it was a whole constellation of visionaries and reformers of whom Gandhi happened to be the most influential and important, but by no means the sole voice. Now, for a variety of complex reasons, partition could not be avoided and it happened. In my view, the concession of separate electorates by the British sowed the seeds of partition, an event that decisively moved the curve of history towards the partition of India. It could have been done differently over a longer period. Less people could have died. Lord Mountbatten, who was a viceroy, bears major share of the blame for the violence that took place because he did not deploy the army properly. He did not put administrative systems in place and so on. But partition is 75 years old. You know, I think the greatness of the Indian leaders at the time of partition was rather than take the part of retribution and revenge and visit on India's Muslim minority what the Pakistanis were doing to their Hindu and Sikh minority, they decided to nurture and build an inclusive, pluralistic, reformist, egalitarian kind of nation. I mean, they only partially succeeded. Caste and gender equalities are still pervasive in many parts of India, as indeed gender and race inequalities would be in many parts of the United States, the civil rights movement notwithstanding. But it was a morally compelling vision. I think that's something. And, you know, for example, I mentioned Ambedkar. 
Now, if you read Ambedkar's speeches to the Constitutional Assembly while drafting the Constitution, his talk of constitutional morality, his warnings against the cult of personality, his remarks that with the Constitution, India would have one person, one vote, but it would not have one person, one value, because by caste and by gender, there was still enormous discrimination and differentiation in opportunities. So I think there are many fine books on the Indian Constitution and the debates that took place leading to the Constitution, I think uh, bear close study and could probably animate debates in many different parts of the world, including Europe and North America. Yeah, and I think the role that this sort of separate electorate played in leading to these divisions is that actually has a lot of contemporary resonance when we're thinking through how you recognize difference within diverse societies, but in a way that doesn't actually perpetuate the fragmentation. Absolutely, absolutely. So India is founded, I believe, in 1947. And at the time, there's a lot of skepticism about whether this country can sustain a democracy. It is then a very poor society, a society which is quite clearly majority illiterate, that is incredibly diverse geographically, linguistically, and of course, religiously as well. What accounts for the success of early Indian democracy? Why is it that this country is in many ways the most positive democratic surprise in the second half of the 20th century? So I think it has a lot to do with the whole cohort of the early leaders. So Nehru, who was prime minister, Patel, who was home minister, Ambedkar, who was law minister, social workers. One person I'd particularly, again, alert your audience to, was a very remarkable feminist called Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay, who in the 1930s came to the American South, bringing the ideas of civil disobedience. She returns to India, and after 1947, when the refugees from Pakistan come in, several million refugees, she plays a very important role in resettling them and in nurturing a vibrant artisanal industry sector. Some of the officials, for example, our first election commissioner who designed the electoral rolls and the voting pattern for the first election, you know, set a template. So we were very lucky in the this whole cast of founders who united a fragmented, divided republic, scarred by the wounds of partition and framed a constitution. And I think the birth of India really is not August 15, 1947, when the British left, but January 26, 1950, when the constitution was adopted, you know, because I think that's in many ways uh, really the critical founding moment. And as the great American historian of the Indian constitution, Granville Austin, used to say, fundamental rights were decided against a background of fundamental wrongs. You know, that's, that's his phrase of how India adopted this kind of quite remarkable constitution. And, you know, we've kind of stumbled along since then. As I said, we've had different crises. It's not been an easy road. And what we're going through today is by no means unprecedented. When you're living through it, you think it's horrible and awful. But as a historian, you have a long view. You have certain detachment. You recognize that there have been crises before. You've come through it. And you learn from your understanding of those earlier crises. So I think one of the elements that's interesting to trace here is the dominance intellectually, but also politically of the Congress party for much of the early decades of the Indian Republic, and how that seems to fracture over time, how the party both becomes less capable of providing intellectual leadership within the country and maintaining this vision of India as a diverse country not defined by its Hindu majority, but then also how it gives way to some extent to corruption, how it loses a lot of popular support. What is the story of that? Because that seems to me like important background for understanding how it is that not just Narendra Modi, but the BJP and the RSS 
can come to exercise much influence today. So you're quite right, Yasha. The fact the Congress enjoyed kind of a hegemonic status for the first three decades of independence and then has declined. It would be very interesting. It may take us a little away from the focus of our discussion. But I've always increasingly been fascinated uh, with the comparison between the Congress in India and the African National Congress in South Africa. You know, the vehicle of the freedom struggle, it had the moral legitimacy because it led the popular movement. Mandela himself was kind of a combination of Nehru and Gandhi. They were the de facto inheritors of power from the authoritarian regime that preceded them. But after 30 years in South Africa, you now see some of the scene going off of the ANC, corruption, incompetence, irrationalism, and so on and so forth. Now, what happened to the Congress apart from complacency, corruption, incompetence in India was the conversion of a grassroots party into a family firm. Indira Gandhi, when she imposed the emergency, anointed her son Sanjay Gandhi as a successor. And when he died in an air crash, she brought in her other son, Rajiv Gandhi, as his successor. Except for a brief period in the early 1990s, where after Indira Gandhi and Rajiv Gandhi were both brutally murdered, and Sonia Gandhi, Rajiv Gandhi's widow, was in seclusion, except for a few years in the 1990s, for the last 50 years, the Congress has been a family firm. So it's unrecognizable from the Congress that led the freedom struggle, the Congress that helped draft the Constitution, the Congress that oversaw the first few decades of national unity and economic and social development and so on. The Congress today is a vehicle for the promotion of Sonia Gandhi and her children. And of course, that is greatly to the advantage of the BJP because the BJP's main leaders are all completely self-made, are not entitled. They have nasty political views, which is a separate question. But in terms of where they've come into politics, you know, they are actually grassroots self-made politicians in the way in which, shall we say, Angela Merkel was or Barack Obama was. You know, whereas the Congress party is led by people who are even more entitled than George Bush and Hillary you know, they come from dynasties that have been entrenched for decades. And I think that is part of the crisis we're facing today is that the Congress party under the Gandhis are Narendra Modi and the BJP's strongest allies. So one of the roots of the success of the BJP and of Modi is the delegitimation of the Congress party as it turns into a kind of family firm. The other, I suppose, has these more long-running roots that go back all the way to what you would call the Hindu revivalism. And that is sort of a rejection by a part of Indian society since the founding all the way through to accept the idea that they will not be able to build a Hindu nation, that the religion of a majority should not also define the nature of a country. So tell us about what happens to that. That's sort of out of the picture in the 1950s and 1960s but presumably is organizing itself. How does that turn into the mass movement of the RSS and so on by the end of the 20th century? So it is out of the picture, but it's slowly growing in northern India. The RSS, which was founded in 1925, had built a countrywide cadre of devoted workers, or pracharaks as they call them, cadres basically, actually very much modeled on an old-style communist party partly modeled on Italian fascism, but also greatly impressed by the order and discipline of communist cadres, right? Now, and then they start making electoral presence in the 60s. They're involved in the opposition to the emergency, but their real growth comes in the 1980s with a campaign to demolish a mosque and build a temple in the town of Ayodhya on a site which some or many, but not all, but many believed to be the place where the mythical god-king Rama, the hero of the Hindu epic, the Ramayana, was born. So Ayodhya is believed to have been the birthplace of Rama 
and many people believe that the site on which the 16th century mosque was built was where Rama was actually the birthplace and around this movement they really grew and grew and grew and finally became the first they did. Now apart from these developments internal to India Yasha there's something going on in the region as a whole. So South Asia is dominated by majoritarian states. So Myanmar and Sri Lanka are Buddhist majoritarian states in which Muslims in one case in Myanmar and Tamil Hindus in Sri Lanka have been persecuted. Pakistan into a lesser extent Bangladesh are Islamic majoritarian states and fundamentalism is rivalrous and competitive. They feed from the fundamentalism feed on one another and what has happened to India is that at one stage, because of the Congress, the Constitution, Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, it was an aberration in South Asia. It did not approximate uh, this kind of majoritarianism. But now it has joined the South Asian club. And in many ways, the RSS has an envy of the Muslim clergy. They have what I call a mullah envy. You know, the mullahs can tell Muslim women, you can't dress like this, you must only wear this. They can say, this play offends the Prophet, so it must be banned. And the RSS has the same kind of, you know, this is anti-Hindu. So now there's a whole a wave of attacks on comedians, uh, satirists, plays, which allegedly portray Hindu gods in an unfamiliar light. It's love jihad, which means women can't choose whom they marry. You can't choose what you eat. You can't choose how you dress. So there's a kind of envy of the, what the Islamic clergy has done in the most reactionary Muslim countries, which includes not just Pakistan, but Iran and places in the Gulf and so on. So Hindu males want to assert themselves over Hindu women, of course, but also about other Hindus. They want to lay down the law. They're becoming, as one historian wrote many years ago, they're becoming more and more Semitic. Hinduism never really had one church, one religion, one language, one temple. It would never had any consideration of blasphemy. If you look at our, you know, uh, ancient temples, I mean, they're kind of playful. If you look at, actually, traditionally, gay love was valorized in many parts of ancient India, but attacks on homosexuals, all kinds of things, you know, come in as a result of this desperate desire by Hindu figures to imitate, I would say, the worst of Islam and the worst of medieval Christianity. That's very interesting. And so you get the growth of the RSS into a mass movement. When does it first really take political power in the form of a BJP? And perhaps here we do get back to the figure of Modi, who, as I understand it, grows up within the RSS. And one of the strengths of it is the way in which it doesn't just discipline its members, but in which it finds talented young boys who come from relatively lowly social stations and raises them up to be able to exert influence in the way that end up happening with Modi. So tell us sort of the story perhaps of Modi and, uh, and of how he comes to be prime minister, first of all, of one of the states in India, and how that allows the BJP to really get into office. Yeah, so I'll come to Modi in a minute. But I first have to talk about the BJP's predecessor, which was the Jansang, which was a Hindu first party active in the 50s and 60s with modest success. In the 1970s, when Indira Gandhi uh, imposed the emergency, four different opposition parties united. Two socialist fragments, a libertarian fragment, and the Jansang, which is a Hindu first fragment, 
to form the Janta Party. And the Janta Party was in power in New Delhi from 77 to 1980. And Atal Bihari Vajpayee, later to become the first BJP Prime Minister, was the Janta Party's Foreign Minister. Then the Janta Party broke up and the Jan Sangh was reborn as the Bharatiya Janta Party. In the 1980s, it launched this movement to reclaim this mosque for a Hindu temple. And Modi was an important organizer of that movement. The leader of that movement was a hardliner called Lal Krishna Advani. And Modi organized his route, you know, his route, he, and uh, his route through densely populated Hindu Muslim areas, making provocative speeches and polarizing opinion and so on. In 1990, Modi was an organizer from the RSS, deputed to the BJP, and he was recognized for being a good organizer. And in 2001, he was appointed chief minister of his home state, Gujarat. In 2002, there were a pogrom against the Muslims of Gujarat, which Narendra Modi certainly bears moral culpability for, perhaps not criminal culpability. He was an incompetent, inexperienced administrator. He didn't do enough to stop it. And of course, there was a great revulsion against him. His US visa was revoked. He was not granted a US visa at that stage. And then he slowly, slyly sought to remake himself as a man of development. And it's on that platform, as a self-made man of development, that he fought the 2014 general elections. He's a very hardworking man, a very intelligent man, a very able man, and very good orator, particularly in Hindi, a language understood by a plurality of Indians. And of course, self-made, unlike his opponent Rahul Gandhi. So he becomes prime minister. Ostensibly having remade himself, you know, many liberal intellectuals, not me, but some of my colleagues actually endorsed him at that stage. I happen to know Gujarat very well, so I was never taken in by, you know, his protestations of having overcome his sector and past. But once in power, he did two or three things. One is he builds this enormous cult of personality. You know, Yasha, uh, that Indians are obsessed with cricket. And the biggest cricket stadium in the world is in Narendra Modi's hometown, Ahmedabad, and it's named Narendra Modi Stadium. Now, this is the kind of stuff that has only happened with Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and Stalin and Mussolini and so on. It only happens in authoritarian regimes. So, there's a culture personality. He's incredibly narcissistic. So, I've given you all his strong points. Hardworking, self-made, intelligent, great orator. On the flip side, would be narcissistic, sectarian, Content for expertise. If you look at his economic decisions, I mean, the Indian economy was doing badly well before the pandemic, partly because he won't consult India's best economists. And we produced several Nobel laureates, among others, but he would never consult them. So after 2014, the combination of narcissism, sectarianism and contempt for expertise has been displayed in many, many different ways to the detriment of the economy, the social fabric, the institutional robustness and, of course, the future of Indian democracy. And he is likely to get, I won't say it's certain, but he's likely to get a third term, particularly if the Congress does not change his leadership. Because though Modi and his party, the BJP, face strong opposition in some important states, such as states in the South, Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Bengal, Maharashtra, when it comes to a general election, it's positive as presidential. And the fragmented, diverse regional parties can't throw up a leader to match Modi. The Congress, which has a pretense of being the only national party, apart from the BJP, has only this incompetent, lazy dynast, Rahul Gandhi, to lead them. So the short-term future for Indian democracy, for Indian pluralism, for Indian social harmony, is bleak. But in the long term, I think possibly things could change. So let's cover the short term and the long term. I guess one question I have is, let's assume that 
the Congress gets its act together or is able to forge a coalition of different parties in different parts of India and that they actually have a shot at winning the election. To what extent would the election still be free and fair? To what extent would they have a shot to be heard properly by the population? And to what extent are we confident that the vote would be counted fairly? That's a very good question, Yasha. First, I'll talk about the ways in which the electoral process has been distorted to benefit the BJP. So the media is um, in the hands of the BJP. There is no vigorous anti-BJP media. The bureaucracy, the election commission itself, the way elections are scheduled. So if there's an election, the BJP will schedule the different stages so as to benefit it. So that it will rather voting first take place in areas where it is likely to win. So that a rumor goes around that the BJP is winning and other people also vote for the BJP. Then you have this utter scandal called electoral bonds, where industrialists can donate money in secret to the BJP and only the BJP knows. And in return for favors, of course, in terms of licenses and contracts and so on. And I think almost 90% of the electoral bonds go to the BJP. So there's bias in institutions, in media and in funding. But voting itself is largely free and fair. So in the state elections, for example, in Bengal earlier this year or in Delhi in uh, last year, in 2020, where the BJP threw everything into the elections, they still lost. Right. So they can still lose state elections if you have a vigorous state leader who is well organized. At the national level, the Congress remains a stumbling block because Sonia Gandhi is determined that only Rahul Gandhi can lead the opposition and no other leader of an opposition party has the remotest respect or for or trust in Rahul Gandhi. So if there is to be a viable opposition coming together, a collection of different fragments, it can only be at the moment there is an impasse because the Gandhis won't leave the leadership of the Congress. And the other parties won't accept the Congress as being the principal face of the opposition. And Sonia Gandhi, by the way, just as a real aside, is a fascinating character in itself. I can't think of many other people who are foreign born and grew up in another country until I believe their 20s and then come to have such an outsized role and such outsized power in a country for so long. Sonia Gandhi, as I understand, is an Italian woman in origin who met kind of here of the Gandhi family in Cambridge in England. And then after his death sort of became the family matriarch in a certain kind of way. It's a sort of remarkable story that she's a person who still holds sort of so much influence over the opposition in India at this key moment. Absolutely. In fact, if I was to leave aside my life as a citizen and as a Democrat and think of my life as a historian and as a biographer, you know, Narendra Modi and Sonia Gandhi are both incredibly fascinating in very different ways. You know, I think, I mean, it's too late for me. I'm in my mid-60s and I'm too involved in thinking and writing about India. But one day a younger historian will write a dual biography of, like you had Alan Bullock's Hitler and, and Stalin, you'll have someone doing Modi and Sonia Gandhi. You know, it'll be a fascinating and instructive contrast because equally unlikely, equally unlikely given where they started from, that these two people would exercise such an outsized influence in Indian politics for decades together. So the BJP is vulnerable. We've seen this in the state elections in Delhi and Bengal and other places that they failed to win, despite from Kitchen Singh at it. That leaves an opening, but as you're saying, that opening is only likely to be there if the opposition can unite. So what would the best case scenario there be? What would it look like for the opposition to somehow cobble together a viable challenge? Or is that simply, is there no realistic path to that by the time of the next national? No, I am not very good at prescription, Yasha. 
I made a couple of suggestions in the past that have rebounded on me as to how the opposition get his act together. You know, but I just say this that in the long term, the BJP is vulnerable because of the conversion of a grassroots party into a personality cult. You know, Modi is everywhere. So my home state, Karnataka. Six few months ago, the incumbent chief minister, who's an old BJP hand from Vajpayee's days, was abruptly removed because Modi and Shah did not like him. He was extremely popular in the state. He also happens to be among BJP leaders. You know, he promotes his children. There are corruption cases against him. But he's relatively non-sectarian. But Modi and Shah did not like him, so they removed him, even though he was the most popular party leader in the state and appointed that toady of their own. Now they are unhappy with that toady and want to replace him too. So they're doing this in state by state, which means in the long term, the state organizations will atrophy. And once this great overarching figure of Narendra Modi goes, the BJP will become weak. So I think personality cults always are damaging for the country, of course, but they're also damaging for the party that promotes them. Right. So I think in that sense, in the long term, because they become so dependent on Modi, the BJP, I think they're vulnerable. And so let's hope that Modi somehow loses elections eventually. How lasting damage do you think he will have done to India's self-understanding as a sort of pluralistic nation. Is this going to be remembered as a moment in which Hindu nationalism had the ascendant, but, but it won't have properly transformed the self-understanding of India? Or do you think that what you called earlier, the kind of exception of India in a region of majoritarian, religiously inflected states is eventually going to come to a definitive end, even if a democratic form of government can be preserved beyond Modi's stint in power? So again, Modi, Shah, the RSS and the BJP have, will be, have been in power 10 years in 2024. They are likely, not certain, but likely to get a third term. Now, in these 15 years, they certainly would have weakened the social fabric, made Muslims and Christians more insecure. This is all well known. What is not as well known goes back to what I talked about, their contempt for expertise. So India had a relatively robust, for a third world country, scientific infrastructure. Now, all kinds of crazy ideas from the ancient Hindu past are being promoted as modern science. So our well-known institutes of science, their morale has been destroyed. They are not doing independent research. Institutions such as the civil service, the judiciary are also not just not efficient, but uh, also not independent. Right. So economic growth is another casualty. Unemployment, because Modi and the BJP have done nothing about generating jobs, right? So unemployment is at an all-time high. I mean, labor force participation in India is lower than that in Pakistan. Women are being withdrawn from the labor force, Muslim and Hindu women. You know, female labor force participation in India is much lower than in Bangladesh. So these are some of the consequences of the last 10, 15 years that go beyond merely making Muslims insecure, which is bad enough and awful enough, particularly for someone like me, who's an Indian Democrat and a biographer of Gandhi and so on. But I think institutional decline, the contempt for expertise, the growing flight of talent to the West, which is always there, but is now going to accelerate. I think crony capitalism, there are two companies, Ambani and Adani, who have made windfall gains under Modi. The pandemic has made them unimaginably rich. Uh, they're very close to the government. They get most of the prestigious contracts. So there isn't even a level playing field for entrepreneurs, right? So all this will add up. India was never going to be a superpower. And I always thought superpower aspirations were futile and fantastic. But India could have been what some people call a rising power, 
a stable democracy with a growing economy, which could showcase its diversity and pluralism to the world. I think that moment has passed. Whether we can recover it, whether we can rebuild our institutions, whether we can rebuild our social fabric, that's really an open question. And maybe young Indians will do all that. Let's hope so. As a last question, you know, I'm always reluctant to draw any parallels between India and other countries because India is so complex and in many ways so generous. But you don't have to be reluctant in the same way. And what lessons do you think observers from outside of India who may be living in countries that have democratic crises of their own at the moment can draw from the current situation in India and how the country has transformed in the last decades? I mean, I know that my American friends are very worried about the direction America is going in. You know, I'm more hopeful about America. I think American institutions are more robust. You know, apart from America, the country I know well is Great Britain. And I detest Boris Johnson. Uh, but uh, the British institutions and the British media will see of uh, Boris Johnson. So the long-term damage in countries like the US and the UK done by sectarianism and a personality cult, I think will be managed. Uh, the long-term damage done by authoritarianism and a personality cult in countries like Russia and Turkey is probably irreparable. You know, Putin and Erdogan have respectively destroyed what Russia and Turkey could contribute to the world. I mean, Orban is still open, but Erdogan and Putin will go down in history as people who grievously damaged their country in the way in which Mussolini or Hitler or Stalin did. Right Now, India is somewhere in between. You can't be as hopeful as you are of Great Britain and United Kingdom or of France, for example, where again, there's also a right-wing uh, resurgence. You can't be as hopeful, but you can be more hopeful. I would be more hopeful about India than I am about Russia and Turkey. Again, two great countries with great civilizations and so much to offer the world. Because we have had a longer tradition of democratic elections, because there's still some open spaces in which people express their views, and because nothing is permanent in politics. I mean, Modi and Shah and the BJP are not permanent. But, you know, I think a lot has been squandered by the second term of the Congress, under uh, Manmohan Singh and the two terms, uh, Bodhi, economically particularly, you know, I think we are in a bad way. You know, I don't talk much about economics because uh, I really understand society and politics much better than I understand economics. But my economist friends are very worried. One other casualty of the Modi regime, Yasha, has been the telling of lies, including statistical lies. So we once had one of the best statistical systems of reporting in the world. Employment, consumer expenditure, you know, family health. And now much of this data is doctored to show Modi in a good light. So, you know, that is very worrisome when official statistics are lies and are meant to flatter the leader and his party rather than tell the truth and allow you to look in the mirror. Ram Gukha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.